want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, part two of episode 16 with Chief Warrant Officer Joseph Rosamond, which you know, now, because you're, you're crew of four, you got the Blackhawk. Blackhawk's probably crew of four or three, right? They uh, had three that night, yeah. So uh, you guys are operating alone and afraid out there. And then obviously you have people who have been stranded for hours, surrounded by fire and smoke, perceived death, if not imminent death. I imagine they want to get off that campground as fast as humanly possible. So now the guys in the back have gotten you guys safely onto the the boat launch but now the next step is getting those people into the helicopter safely right yeah so that they don't get chopped in half exactly yeah so and, and that was part of that whole landing plan I was like hey let's move up the boat ramp a little bit because that puts all of the people more to our um four or five o'clock that way it's it would be unnatural for them to move over to our 12 right so they're naturally going to go straight towards us and that's going to take them to like a 45 degree angle to our ramp, which would be perfect. Right. Um, so yeah, so we land, uh, the brakes actually didn't hold. So we had to pick up, reset the brakes, do it again. Uh, um, classic. Yeah. And now, now also on that, on that, on that slope. So the forward gear are like 45 feet from the tip of the forward blade, which is already low. So that creates its approach angle, right? kind of like a approaching a lot of truck going trying to hit an obstacle right and uh so we're getting down close to, the, to this landing and the forward blades are only like a couple feet off the ground when the, the forward gear finally touched and we're able to start angling back you know start pivoting back before the after gear so and, and i've been in that position before in afghanistan you know where we're doing stuff that are really close really close tolerances you know and but uh so i kind of knew kind of felt like that was okay, but we had gotten probably right to where I was about to say, nope, we can't land here when the forward gear touched. So um, did the landing. People are all out the four or five o'clock. Flying engineers lower the ramp and they immediately just start doing their job. They start taking over. Um, There's nobody on the ground as far as law enforcement or firefighters or anything like that. So it's just a bunch of civilians, which is scary in itself because even military people who work like infantrymen, right? Uh, anybody who's out there, they, they know their jobs really well until it gets really loud. And as soon as the engines start, the rotors start, and, and you start getting noise, man, you just, you, you lose your mind because you can't hear, yeah. you, you know, and uh, you, the way you communicate changes. You can't communicate verbally anymore. It's, it's all like hand motions and, you know, trying to do some sort of charade, you know, on, on what you need people to do. And, and so now for untrained people to, to be in that position, it can get really, really dangerous for them. Flight engineers, they went out, walked out towards the people, kind of corralled some people up. There's a few people on the ground that that helped take charge. And they said, hey, anybody that's injured, let's prioritize the injured. And let's prior- prioritize children uh, with their mothers and, and whatnot. And for the most part, everybody complied with that. Everybody worked well out there. There was 
especially on that first lift, there was it, it wasn't like um, you know dropping rice in the middle of of some other country where you just get bombarded <laughs> with people, right? Uh, right. And so that worked out well. And so we stayed on the ground for you know 15, 20 minutes while they loaded. Uh, did some performance calculations as they told us the numbers of people. So when we were doing our performance calculations, it's uh, we just estimate people's weight. If it's a combat loaded paratrooper, that dude's three hundred pounds with all of his gear. If it's a gotcha. if it's a regular dude with just his backpack on, two hundred pounds is what we're is what we're going to average people out at, and that's what we used. Um, even though we had children, which are like eighty pounds, but you know this is America, so there's some people that weigh more than two hundred. <laughs> yeah. um, myself, be a little conservative, yeah. <laughs> so we figured, okay, it's a good swag; it'll be close, right? And that really hinges on how many passengers we have, and we rely on the flight engineers to tell us that. Um, and so as they're loading, you know, I remember I'm looking back, and and I see. I see a family, mother and two kids. Kids were the same age as my kids. I mean, that that hit me hard. You know, seeing seeing them there, they were just so scared. Um, and uh, so I'm like, all right, can't look back anymore because uh, we need yeah. to get out of here too, right? And uh, so they get all done, and we get the numbers. They count everybody up today. That's 65 people. Like, okay, I guess we're loaded up. I mean, normal for a Chinook is 30, 30 to 33, right? That's so wild. Yeah, we did the math, came out with the weight. Plug the weight into the uh, the performance uh, computers on board. It spit out a hover power that we uh, the torque for for our hover power, and it was within it was below the maximums that we could use, and so we were all right, we're good. Um, did it before takeoff and took off, no problems. It was heavy, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't undoable. It wasn't bad, you know. It, and uh, and uh, and so then we went out the same way that we came in. Through the, through the same valley. The Blackhawk was waiting behind us. And uh, so we kind of came up with a plan as we were sitting there in the LZ and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm right behind you. When you come out, you just go left and then, then I'll go land right where you were. And uh, so that worked out well. How far out did you take him? I mean, how, how long of a flight was it to get him to safety? So that was the other part. So we get out of the fire area, out of the smoke and then I'm thinking, you know, I had already made up a plan before we took off to go to this private airstrip and drop them off at the closest safe place as possible. But then we realized that I'm like, Hey, so what are the injuries like? And, and the fine engineers were telling me, dude, there, there's some bad ones back here. We've got about, you know, two dozen people that have some sort of injury. Some of these are pretty major, major burns, second, third degree burns over 40% of your body or more. There's some people with broken bones. One guy, literally crawled into the, was crawling up to the aircraft because he had broken both of his ankles while he was right. running away from the fire. So, so we uh, kind of made the decision that, all right, these people are going to need a higher level of care than just an ambulance sitting at a private airstrip in the middle of the forest. Right. So we, we just went straight back to Fresno. I was familiar with Fresno. We knew it's a big city. They have a lot of EMS. Um, and basically just thinking, okay, we need to get to a roll two or something like that, you know, to, uh, get these people to help. And it was a, I want to say it was a, like a 19 minute flight when we finally hit direct Fresno, 19 minutes. And we just went as fast as we could. But the important part is that we, nobody knew we were coming. Right. And we were out in the middle of the mountains. And so we got back on with the Cal fire operations chief uh, that we had talked to earlier in the night. And we're like, Hey, I need you to coordinate with Fresno and let them know that they've got about, they've got 65 people. Uh, half a dozen of them are, have moderate to severe injuries. Um, and we need as many first responders at Fresno airport as possible. Um, and so he started that coordination. We, uh, 
made that same redundant call to our own operations when we got within radio contact with them. Um, and then we did another redundant call of the same nature with approach control, their ATC, as we we're going in. Like, hey, seriously, we need everybody. We need everybody there because we're bringing in 65. The Blackhawks picking up more. I don't know how many more. And there's more people there. So this is going to be a quite a quite a night. Yeah. So for any hospital to take, you know, 100 people in in, in the matter of an hour, it, that's a lot, you know, for them. Well, and I mean, this ties into obviously everything you guys did that night awarded the DFC for. Uh, obviously a lot of heroic actions, but it even comes down to, it, it seems simple, but driving 19 minutes to Fresno versus the private airstrip. Again, I don't know that terrain, but I imagine had you touched down and dropped those people off, that would have been a 12 hour recovery oh, yeah. with one or two ambulances, like running up the mountain to get these people. Yeah. So a, a drastic difference in driving to, you know, a spot that's just a little bit further away via helicopter a lot further away yeah. via ambulance or car. So things like that come with years of experience. And obviously in the end meant the difference between life and death for some of those people, I'm sure. And for most of those people, a lot of discomfort and getting to a spot where they can start healing and getting to yeah back to a normal life. So yeah. like hats off. Cause again, Thanks. like that's, it's a very complex problem just flying around in that environment, let alone now dealing with like, you know, Hey, you're meant to fly Chinooks, right? But yeah. now you're going to be doing some problem solving and, and thinking outside of the box. And I think that's one of the awesome things about aviation, but incredible stuff. And I know you kind of like just skimmed over, but people really need to like, as they listen you understand there's a lot going on there. Yeah, a lot it, of variables. It really just comes down to the situational awareness. Like we use this term a lot, situational awareness. But what does it really mean? And and it could mean just knowing where you are in your little piece of airspace, or it could mean, you know, what's my job, what's my team's job right now? Well, what's the job of the units to the left and right of me? What's you know, what's what's the bigger picture? And and I think that's you gain that with more experience and with you know, you get some of the air sense stuff just becomes more natural. And so you're able to think about other things that, that some people wouldn't think, wouldn't necessarily think about. It seems like a huge elephant, right? Like, and I talk about how, like, well, how do you eat an elephant? Well, you eat it one bite at a time. And, yep. and it really does come down to like compartmentalizing. What do I need to do now? And what do I need to do next? And that's really as far as we were able to think, right? Like, okay, what am I doing now? All right, that's handled. What do I gotta do? You know, what, what's coming up next? All right, that becomes the, the next current problem. Uh, and then, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? And always like one step ahead, trying to stay one step ahead as much as possible. And I think that's what really helped everybody kind of get through all that and, and deal with all these different things that just seem like such a mountain to overcome. And I got to give hats off to the crew as well. Like this wasn't just me. I mean, I'm the one here talking, but it was each and every one of them filling each other's right. gaps, right? Like I wasn't perfect for sure that night. And Brady, he, he filled in my gaps. He was, he was the coverage there to, to cross monitor me um, and vice versa. There was some experience that I brought to the table he wouldn't have thought of. And there was some experiences that he's had that kind of allowed him to see where I was maybe making a mistake or going down a road that wasn't going to work out. And the flight engineers were doing the same thing. They, they, they picked up portions of this mission that, that we would have not thought, you know. Definitely a team effort. Yeah. You guys ended up going back. Uh, two more times, right? Yeah. That night. Yeah. So, so we, I imagine similar, similar type herring approaches and, and pulling people out of there. Yeah. So the, the, 
the positives. So we ended up approaching from three different directions. So a different direction each time because the winds changed and the, so the smoke was changing. Um, so each approach or each ingress route was different. But once we got to the lake, we were familiar with the lake, right? And we knew where we were going to land. We, it was the same landing every single time, more familiar with it. So now there's a lot less unknowns um, and we can do it a little bit quicker. And uh, on the second trip, the uh, the difference was that we, well, we had time after we dropped off the, the first round of people, uh, we were getting gas and the Blackhawk came in and dropped off their people and they needed to get gas. And so I was able to finally do a face-to-face with the other pilot command. And we were able to now, instead of doing this hasty, like ad hoc type of multi-ship mission, now we were able to actually sit down and brief a little bit. Like, all right, what do you, here's the plan. What do you think we should do? Kind of spitball some ideas off of each other. And it ended up where we decided he was going to go first and I was going to follow him in um, because he would take a lot less time on the ground than I would. So I'd rather wait for 10 minutes while he's loading than have him wait for 45 minutes while I'm loading, right? Uh, so we kind of come up with that plan. Um, he had gone initially on the first run, he was following us, but because of the visibility and the smoke, he decided to turn around and he found another way in off from the east. So we were able to brief prior to the second trip. Like he goes, Hey, I came in from the east last time. It was, it was perfectly fine. Um, you went around the column of smoke and it was, it was good. It, it wasn't near as hairy as the valley, right? That we were kind of married to at the time. Um, so like, okay, cool. We'll follow you in. So, um, we did that. We went around to the east of the fire and came in from the east, found the lake. Um, they landed, we kind of circled around. We checked out a couple more spots. We saw some vehicles on the shoreline. So we checked those out to see if the, if there were people near, near those other vehicles while they were loading. And then once they were out, then, uh, then we did the same landing as we did before. And the guys went to work again, um, loading people. Of course, now everybody who's on the ground or everybody who's anywhere near the area, they had now heard these helicopters come in, two helicopters. Then they had an hour basically uh, to kind of uh, collect and and uh, and get to this LZ. So we show up and I'm seeing a lot more people than were there previously than I saw the first time. Like, okay, so this is starting to organize a little bit. Fineshares go to work, they're loading people, and it seems like it's taking a lot more time. And so we're asking, like, hey, so how many people you got? Hold on, we're, we're still loading, we're still loading. All right, how much long? How much longer? And uh, it was just kind of every few minutes or so, we're just sending questions back to see what the status is, right? And uh, and it was a really long time. And they were like, we're still loading, we're still loading, we're still loading. Just, we're almost done. Uh, we don't have a count for you right now. And I'm thinking like, okay, we'll just wait till they're done. They raise the ramp and we'll have them do a head count real quick before we take off. Um, and it must've been a good 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I was sitting there on the ground, which is a lot, you know? And and um, they're like, okay, we're, we're just about ready to go. We have no idea how many people on board the aircraft. Like we lost count a long time ago. <laughs> and so up front, it's kind of like, really? Like now I have, I have no data for, yeah. for this performance planning type of stuff. And, and I said, just give me an estimate. And they kind of like look over everybody's heads. This is the picture of everybody packed in, you know, that, that, most everybody saw on social media. Yep. Like uh, they're like, ah, it looks like seventy-five people or so. We're like, okay, cool, seventy-five. You know, that's about fifteen thousand pounds. Stick that in, and um, like, okay, so it's it's heavier, 
we have more gas this time because we didn't spend an hour in route time. Uh, so we have a little bit more gas and it's right at our limit. We're like, okay, cool. 15,000 pounds. That sticks us at, you know, about 49, 49, 40, maybe 49,000 pounds, somewhere around there, give or take. Um, our max gross is 50,000, by the way. And so we're like, okay, th this will work. The numbers say we'll be hovering with, you know, 85%. We've got whatever, 100, 100 plus available. Okay, this is, this should be good. So we go to take off. Now Brady's flying this this leg and uh, he takes off. And immediately I noticed that, yeah, we're a lot heavier than what these guys said, what we estimated, right? A lot heavier. The whole aircraft is shaking. You know, you could feel the blades slap, like they're just coned up. So, because they, what happens if you pick up weight, like those rotors are holding all the weight. So they end up coning, coning up, you know, Ugh. really bad. Ugh. Which these are all terrible things for me to think about. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's like, like wings are like, it's like wing loading, right? And, yeah. And, uh, you know, you start thinking about it aerodynamically. If you, you know, where the rotor system's flat, all that lift's going up. But as soon as they start coning, now some of that upward vector is gone. You have more of an inward vector. It wants to speed up a little bit because you've got this conservation of angular momentum stuff going on, right? There's a lot of drag and, and, and whatnot. And, but this, the whole, I don't think I've ever felt the aircraft shake like this before. And it's well above, I mean, we're into like 95% uh, torque just to hover this thing because of the angle we were on when, when the aircraft lift up off the ground, it was still in this nose high that the, the boat ramp was a 13 degree nose high slope. And so we was still kind of in this nose high attitude when we picked up off the ground. And so the aircraft immediately started like shifting back or, or drifting back and couple that with uh, this really aft CG. It took a lot of like forward cyclic in order to level everything out. And when that happened, we ended up pulling, we ended up over torquing a little bit, even though the engines were producing, I don't remember what the number was, but let's say it was like 118% that they could produce. Their transmissions are still limited at 100, percent right? And so gotcha. we ended up pulling 103 percent for a little bit. And anything above 95 percent, the system just screams in your ear: torque, 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 torque. You know, and it, it gets really annoying really fast. Uh, yeah. Um, but and we were there for ever. It seemed like so we were hovering over the lake. All these people on board. This unknown amount of people. And we're like, hey, we got to accelerate because at a helicopter you've got to outrun your own rotor wash. And once you do that, the rotor system becomes more efficient because now you're operating in clean air rather than dirty air that's moving downward, right? And so we start accelerating and this is kind of where like that high altitude training came in because so now we're at maximum power, there's nothing left to pull and we're kind of level there. And once you start accelerating, now you're, you're using that upward lift vector, you're tilting it forward to accelerate, which means you're going to descend a little bit. So you descend until you get to ETL or effective translational lift that's going when you outrun your rotor wash finally everything becomes more effective and then you start climbing right so there so on this on this level acceleration takeoff you kind of end up dipping down a little bit and then finally getting out of it you know and, and, and climbing away and so I was kind of expecting that Brady told me afterwards he goes dude I've never been pulling maximum power and descending still when I'm when I'm taking off and so that was kind of a new experience for him uh, which yeah. in that situation just must have been like eyes this huge. Like, what the, am I going to go into the drink? And, you know, what's, what's going on here? You know, I can only imagine how that felt for him. 
Uh, oh, CW5, Rose, Rosemont over there just smoking a cigarette. Yeah, just, yeah, uh, yeah. Just eating, no big no, deal. This is Yeah, eating my form <laughs> or whatever it is, right? No, it, it was still a pretty, like, I, you know, pretty hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you know, it's one of those moments you're like, all right, you got to sound calm to keep right. everybody else calm, <laughs> you know? Like, this is not fun. I am not having fun yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, let's get out of this right now, you know? The, the dirty rotor wash thing, that's the same, like, again, for a dumb fixed wing guy, the Bin Laden helicopter, right? Like the rotor wash going into the compound. Yeah. That was the same type aerodynamic effect, right? That caused it to lose lift and crash inside the compound. Yeah, right? So that's the I'm same thing sure. you guys are battling. And, and so you imagine if you, if you have a tailwind, which I think those guys ended up with a tailwind, which was kind of, uh, caused a little bit of that. So okay. now let's say you have a 10 knot tailwind, that rotor wash is getting pushed in front of you. 10 knots now you've got to go yeah. 10 knots faster in order to outrun it than you normally would have right and so now this this period of where you're dipping down you can max power you're dipping that it becomes longer and maybe you don't have the power to do it you don't have the power to get outside of that that rotor wash uh which i think is what kind of uh caused okay. their, their issue right yeah i'm sure there's a multitude yeah. multiple variables that go into it but Everything you've described thus far in the past five minutes has sound absolutely terrifying to me. So, <laughs> so we finally take off. We're, we're getting clear. Uh, we're actually climbing, which is great. The aircraft's still shaking. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's where you want to be, climbing. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and you, I mean, you'll understand this. I mean, to get out of the terrain, you want to climb at, you know, VX or VY, depending on what your, your thing is, right? And we don't have a published VX or VY in, in the aircraft uh, or in the helicopter. Uh, some do because you can just you can just hover right and just go above the yeah train. but that, that's what, that in, <laughs> i'm kidding yeah well you could but that induced drag is so high on that, that end of the yeah. chart like it's a lot of drag and uh so we have a max rate of climb airspeed which is basically uh it's your vy right so uh okay. that coupled with maximum power applied should give you your best chance that's, that's where the drags the minimum Right, and whatever the difference is between that point of the drag curve and your power available, right, is is how well you can climb. So that's like the bottom of the bucket, basically, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so that speed was eighty knots at that at that weight in those conditions was eighty knots, um, and it ranges between like sixty eight knots and eighty two knots typically, based on weight and conditions. So we knew okay, eighty knots. Let's shoot for eighty knots and. And Brady, he's not accelerating. He's getting to like 70 knots. And we're only climbing out at like 300 feet per minute, maybe. And, and he's trying to pull more more torque in. I mean, the engines are super hot. We're already in our 10-minute uh, engine temperature limit. And uh, I'm like, dude, we can't pull anymore. You need to get up to 80 knots so that we can actually climb better. And he looks over and he's like, dude, I can't. I can't get to 80 knots because we have another gauge. It's called a cruise guide indicator. And all it does is it measures stress on the rotor systems. It takes the one with the worst amount of stress and sends it to the gauge. Um, and what that is, what that's measuring is the bending forces of the shaft, the vertical shafts that the rotor systems are on. Because if you ever had one of those uh, like little helicopter toys, you, know, you, you, you do that and it flies up in the air. If you try to, yep. if you try to shoot it in a direction, it'll, it'll, um, what happens is you've got this retreat, this blade that's going with the direction of the moving vessel, right? And uh, so you've got this advancing blade and a retreating blade. And so their, velo their wind velocities going across them are different. 
right? And so left equation, V squared stuff, you've got more left happening on that advancing blade than you have on the retreating blade, right? Science. Science stuff, right? Um, yep. So what happens is you get this dissymmetry of lift, but because of, I'm going to sound like a freaking W5, I know it, but uh, <laughs> you get this thing called, you know, a phase lag or gyroscopic precession. And so you've got all this lift happening on one side of the rotor system, but it doesn't take effect until 90 degrees later. And so what that ends up happening, it ends up called in this thing called blowback, where the rotor system wants to tilt backwards to stop you. And you'll see that on the toy, it'll go forward and then it'll blow back and it'll stop you. And so we overcome that through the blades flapping. They, they're able to hinge. And so they can change the angle of attack as they're going around the rotor disc um, so that it equalizes that, that the symmetry of lift. Um, but then at a certain point, you have to do that cyclically in the Chinook. In, in traditional helicopters, you do that cyclically automatically, right? Through pitch changing um, using the cycle. But for us, uh, it doesn't happen until like 70 knots, 60, 70 knots. The, the, the automatic system will tilt those things forward. And that's all to reduce the stresses on the transmission shaft, basically. You've got this 10-foot okay. shaft that the transmission's here. This, you know, you've got this big, long arm where the rotor system is, and it just keeps wanting to push back. And so it starts bending that, 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 uh, that shaft. And so this indicator measures all that. And that thing was pegged out in the red, and we were only at like 65, 70 knots. I was like, look, man, I can't go any faster. The CGI is in the red already. So we had to slow down. Like, oh, yeah, that's more important than this number I have stuck in my head. So we slow down, and we're like at 60 knots, and this thing finally comes down to like middle of the yellow. I'm like, okay, that's a little bit more doable. Because the last thing I want is for this rotor system just to fall apart, you know, and, and come off. So we don't, we, yeah, red, bad, yellow, better. You know, yeah. and uh <laughs> and spinning blades of death i tell you yeah, and we're climbing the whole time and i'm trying to look for like okay when can we make this turn and next thing you know we're at we're at eight thousand feet before we you know and it's 40 degrees out so that da is is huge da number right and yep. um and we finally were able to make the turn so that we can clear the mountains and this was seven eight minutes uh into this climb and we're in our 10 minute limit and so there might have been a couple times where we were like, okay, reduce power real quick. Okay, timer's turned off. Turn the timers right back on again, you know. Uh, <laughs> What's a reset? Yeah. Well, it's, out of the, it's it back works. in limits. Yeah, good to go. <laughs> and nothing says how many times I can be in this limit, you know. Right. Um, and so we, we, we do that, and we finally get over this ridge line to where we can now start descending. And as we descend, we can – now we're starting to be able to pick up more speed. We're down to, like, 55 knots in this climb, so we're battling this – so, you know, our induced drag is kind of coming up on the on the back side of this power curve, right? Doing this, like, slow flight stuff, right? And uh, uh, so we're we're only climbing, like, two, 300 feet per minute at a time, which is horribly slow. And still got this max power applied, trying to, like, balance airspeed versus climb uh, performance. Um, and that was the second time where my feelers kind of went off, kind of like, oh, boy, I hope this works out. Right. And so that was that was kind of hair raising for me at that point, thinking, are we going to be able to get over these mountains? Because I really don't want to have to go through that that valley again, because now the conditions are worse. But it worked out. The aircraft stayed together. It was wonderful. Uh, we uh, <laughs> That's a good day. Yeah. It stayed together. 
we started descending into the once we saw Fresno, we started descending uh, into the Fresno Valley. Performance got better. We were able to go a little bit faster and still stay in the green. Um, our uh, uh, our power available started getting better as we descended. Got out of the the heat from the fire, right? So the DA was going down pretty significantly. And so now we're we're doing uh, we're doing our before landing, right? And one of the and so now because we're going so slow, it not turned into a thirty minute flight. But and 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 we're burning like. 4,000 pounds of gas an hour, which is just a huge amount. And we're doing our before landing. It says performance considerations, check. Oh, well, we don't know. Like, we know what is available, but we don't know how much we weigh. We don't know. We know we took off from, with this amount of weight, we took off at 3,300 feet. The airport's at 300 feet, probably a little bit cooler. So we know we got better performance, but we really don't know what to expect. So... Uh, we decide that we were going to attempt to do a roll-on landing. Uh, keep so basically land like an airplane, right? So it allows us to use less power because we don't have to get into the the uh, towards the zero side of less than twenty knots, right? We, our drag curve goes way up. The induced drag is huge, right? And so uh, we can stay in like the lower part of the drag curve, use less power to land, roll it on, and decelerate using aerodynamic braking really, really easy. Um, so we're like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. Okay, we start doing the checks to do the the, the roll on, uh, according with ATC to get the whole runway, and then the flight engineer in the back goes, "Well, guys, that's going to be a problem." Uh, okay, why is this going to be a problem? And he goes, "I have people on the ramp. We can't close the ramp, so the ramp is still level, and if we were to do the roll on, we'd scrape the ramp the whole way." Uh, oh wow! And and like you, so you have no room to you know push them forward, get the ramp up. Nope, there's no room. They're already back here squished. And apparently they were like, they had like their necks tilted because their head was hitting the ceiling of the cabin and everything. And um, the guys were telling them like, hey, if you need to hold on to something, hold on here, not there, because that's that's a hydraulic line or that's a drive shaft, you know, that sort of thing. And um, and so I'm like, okay, we can't do the roll on then. Um, so we we ought to just use the, use the runway still and I brief and uh, Brady on, all right, just keep your speed up at like, 60 knots stay at the bottom of the bucket until we get you know within 10 feet of the ground and we'll just slowly decelerate and that's the next best thing right stay close to the ground but we're still in ground effect um use less power covering give ourselves the best chances of making this successful and and not rough because if people are standing and we have this harder type of landing not a hard landing but like a rough landing uh we could injure some people again right so we do that um it works out fine we, uh, we we get to the hover, we land, start taxiing in. We notice that even the steering is sluggish. The power steering is sluggish just because of all this weight that's in the aircraft. Um, and I told the guys, hey, when, when we park, I need to get a solid head count. When they when they start deplaning, count everybody. It took a long time. Like We shut down completely. We got all of our stuff off, and we're trying to get out of the cockpit, and half the cabin is still full. And um, the final number came out to 102. And I was just wow. absolutely blown away. Like, that's over triple what we normally take. And uh, no wonder we were so heavy, right? And uh, I, I, still, I really, I still don't know how, how that happened, how we got 102 people on board. It was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, that's phenomenal. We say like normal max weight, like 15,000 pounds of cargo. Yeah, right around 16, 15 or 16 or whatever. Yeah. And so, I mean, just do the math, uh, you know, 102 times 200, you're looking at 20,000 pounds. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, 
like we said before, that's a swag. Some of them are children. Some right. of them are guys like you and me, right? So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you're going to be plus or minus there a little bit, but still, like, I mean, 102 people, like, that's phenomenal. Obviously, the performance of the Chinook, I mean, it speaks for itself. Yeah. I know you guys were working it hard, but. Yeah, and over the coming days, back we went through that scenario backwards, and we're like, okay, we figured out, you know, what what was our performance? Like, we, we now that we know the number, what did the chart say? And it was it was pretty well outside the charts. Like when we took off, when we when we took off from yeah. Mammoth Pools, um, we estimate we were at about fifty two thousand pounds, so about two thousand two thousand pounds over max gross weight for those conditions. Once we had to do the climb to eight thousand feet, we we figure we were about ten thousand pounds over gross for those conditions, but some through the engines being you know better than standard through whatever else like it worked out and um to give some perspective like fifty-two thousand pounds isn't that big it's not it's overgrossed for us but in the special ops community they operate at fifty-four thousand pounds all the time so the aircraft can do it structurally it's just that tbos go down uh when you when you do that and and whatnot so uh it really came down i think the worst part was that climb to eight thousand um that's where we were really outside of the chart limits and really in, in like basically test flight mode now, you know? Yeah, that's incredible. So at night between you and the Blackhawk crew, again, you guys uh, rescued, was it 242 individuals? Is that what you guys were credited with? So, yeah. So the number came out to 242, but what we, but we had a different number amongst the aircraft. Um, we came out to um, like 261 or something like that. And the difference there was, when they came up with that 242 number, that was everybody that signed in to the triage center there at the, on the guard ramp. But there were 19 people that got taken away by ambulance uh, immediately and never signed in. So, so when we were like, this is the number I have, this is the number you have, where's the difference? They realized, Oh, it's the people that never signed in. I mean, hats off to you guys. I know you're working really hard. Obviously it took a lot of guts to go in there. I know no one else was flying. It's nighttime. There's smoke, there's fire. Um, and without you guys doing that, there'd be a lot of people who probably would not be with us uh, today. So at least a few, I think. Yeah, n- yeah. no doubt. I mean, even Emigratory and could and could walk and move around. I know uh, the ones with burns and things like that. Spend the night out in the wilderness is probably not going to lend well to it, even yeah. if the fire stayed off. So again, incredible story. I would like to kind of wrap up. At, this is we really dove deep down into this mission. <laughs> which is phenomenal and people are going to be fascinated by uh, and didn't really get to talk a whole lot about you. One thing I like to do when I wrap up an episode with guests is kind of ha- ask them, Hey, if you saw 15 year old Joe today, is there anything you would say to him to do something different, change something or would no change and just keep pressing forward? Um, I probably tell him don't buy that time, that timeshare. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Sage advice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like I, um, there's very little that I regret growing up. Um, My parents did an excellent job of keeping me busy to keep me out of trouble uh, growing up. Kept me in the scouts, you know, did the Eagle Scout thing. uh, Kept And once I was done with that, put me, uh, I was in Civil Air Patrol for a while uh, through high school. Kept me really busy and out of trouble, like you said. And, um, uh, even though like my main, 
my main goal was to go fly jets uh, in the Air Force, right? I really think that I ended up where I needed to be. Um, this all, I was, like I said, right place at the right time is how we started this whole thing, right? Yep. And I was the first W-1 that had come back from flight school to this unit uh, in like 20 years. And so, of course, got hazed and thought it was the worst thing in the world, you know, <laughs> but that set me apart from my peer group. So my closest peer group was, you know, a year behind me uh, in the unit. And um, that that let me go on this deployment that nobody wanted to go on, uh, but then prove myself enough to get a full time job uh, in the guard. And so I've been I've been here as a federal technician, you know, since 04 and um, uh, and luckily, I had some leadership that saw potential. They were kind of worried about me at first, because young twenties, you know. And they're like, "Man, I hope he matures." But you know, we'll hire him anyways because you know we think he's got potential. And and uh, uh, and luckily, it all worked out. And now I have this. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I live ten minutes away from where I work, um, and I'm in a position. Uh, you know, over these years, I'm in a position now to do some of these these things that that we did on the fifth uh, and can bring the experience to these these guys coming in now and just now the name of the game is just impart this knowledge right like i guess the only thing a 15 year old joe could do is maybe listen a little bit better you know it's probably all of us probably <laughs> yeah yeah like there's we've all had plenty of lessons that we've had to learn the hard way even though we we know that there are people out there that tried to teach us you know and no but we're young and headstrong and, and you know and you know just try to learn from from other people's mistakes because sometimes when you learn the hard way it's it's also the fatal way right and it's i think there's been plenty of times where luck has been on my side yeah for sure same for sure always helps yeah. to learn from those that come before you uh, but sometimes yeah. we have to learn the hard way and the lucky ones we make it through without any significant wounds or permanent yeah. damage. i think we all go around especially in aviation we go around with you know two bags we have our skill bag and we have our luck bag and you want to be able to pull from your skill bag a whole lot more than you pull from your yeah. luck bag because one day you're going to reach in and it's going to be empty. Yep. You know? No doubt. <laughs> it's a good way to look at it. Well, again, yeah. uh, Joe, Chief Warrant, Joseph Rosamon, you and your crew, uh, hats off to you guys, all the, uh, recipients of the Distinguished Flying Cross, again, for all the heroic actions you guys did on September 5th and saving 260-plus civilians trapped in the Creek Fire there out in California. So, Thank you for what you guys do. I appreciate you taking the time and joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, wherever you're listening, hit subscribe. And if you can, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That definitely helps out. Until next time, don't bring a week. <laughs>